Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the ideas, events and policies that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and I am Director of ECFR and I'm very happy to be presenting a podcast today on Naked Diplomacy. My guest is Tom Fletcher, the author of Naked Diplomacy, who is a rising star or was i don't know if you're going to return to diplomacy that's something we can talk about later but anyway certainly a rising star in the british foreign office he served several prime ministers in downing street um also worked in in different embassies i first met him in the british embassy in paris but he then went on to become ambassador to lebanon and was a pioneer of a new kind of of, of more connected more digital more public diplomacy and he's now uh, gone on to become a theorist of this new type of diplomacy and has developed uh, a whole set of ideas about how power is changing in the world. And I'd like to talk to him both about those ideas and then maybe also to think about what it could mean for, for the opinion as we go forward. So, Tom, um, maybe you can start by telling us how you think power is changing. Well, morning, Mark, and uh, sure, and thank you, uh, thank you for calling me a rising star. I, I hope people will carry on saying that. I don't know what what age you have to get to before you stop being called a rising star, but um, I'm delighted. Uh, yeah, so I've been writing uh, this book. It, it was really made in Lebanon. I started it um, when I was in Beirut as a means of working off some of the excess adrenaline of the of life as an ambassador there, and I I, I drew several conclusions really about about the way that uh, power was shifting. Um, I mean, firstly, and it's it's an obvious one, but it, it needs restating. The next hundred years are just going to be huge. Uh, looking at what the sociologists have written, the amount of change we'll see in the next century, in technological terms, will be equivalent to over forty centuries. So that's like going from cave paintings to the atom bomb in the lifetime of our kids. And it probably will be the lifetime of our kids, and maybe even our lifetimes. So that's a, that's that change will bring with it enormous political and social change as well. It it always has done. And diplomacy, and anyone who cares about diplomacy, therefore has an awesome responsibility to manage all that change. Many businesses, many ideas, many states will will be put out of business, and there will be not just lots of winners because of that, but also lots of losers, lots of pain. So while I'm overall a huge optimist about the technological change that's underway and, and the way it will open up our societies, we also have that, that huge job ahead of us to, to manage the consequences of that change. And in the midst of all that, you could almost say when diplomacy is becoming more important to get right, diplomacy itself is being disrupted. Uh, as Bob Zellick says, power is easier to get but harder to use and then very much easier to lose look at the leaders that come and go very fast or from my experience in downing street the, how difficult it is actually to govern and to exercise power so in the midst of all that the world that you and i know of, of maps and chaps um is being replaced very fast by um a world much more based on networks and the sort of deference and authority and role of the state on which classic diplomacy uh, relies is being um, eroded uh, rapidly. So diplomacy itself has to learn from the competition, has to adapt very fast, or it will itself uh, be disrupted. 
So in the book, you talk about some big trends which are reshaping the world, some quite macro things, the erosion of US hegemony and the kind of shift to a period where there isn't a single lead nation, the collapse of the, the 20th century order, the increased influence of non-state actors and new elites, and, and then finally the technological empowerment of, of individuals. Um, so in a sense, as you say, the, the world is both changing in terms of who, which great powers wield power, uh, but also the whole idea of representative democracy and of elites uh, making cosy deals amongst themselves is uh, increasingly difficult to, to sustain in the wake of empowered individuals in different places. So where does that leave uh, dip diplomatic services? I mean, what, what are they for? How do they negotiate that? Well, actually, believe it or not, um, of all the ideas in the book, it was the issue of representation which was hardest to get clearance for. I mean, as, as with any ex-government uh, folk, I submitted the book for clearance. I thought um, there would be issues over stories about Berlusconi's pants and um, uh, my, you know, my son turning up naked at checkers and things like that. Um, in fact, no. Uh, we have to come back to Berlusconi's pants before the uh, end of the podcast. It would be remiss. I think you could almost call, <laughs> call it it's like the title of my next book, maybe. Um, but actually, th this issue of representation, which seems quite academic, but is fundamental to this. So as ambassador in Beirut, I was Her Majesty's ambassador. I had a... a uh, my credentials on the wall, the formal credentials that we still exchange at the start of a posting, that in very wordy language set out why I have the confidence of Her Majesty to be her representative. And that is, really, that's my core role as an ambassador. And yet the reality is, and it has been for, um, well, certainly since the Second World War, that in reality, ambassadors are representing much more than that. They're representing uh, Her Majesty's government, in the case of the Brits. They're representing the, their host government's view and not just the individual monarch or leader. But I think that in order to remain relevant and competitive in this space with, that, with these big changes in the nature of power um, that we've discussed, actually our ambassadors, our diplomats will be representing something more than that. They'll be representing the views of a people at large. And that's a very complicated thing to understand and to get right. I used to think that I was representing the brand of the UK from Bond cars to uh, Benedict Cumberbatch to, um, to Scotch whiskey and Scotch salmon and so on. Um, but it's much harder to try and represent a country's views as opposed to just a government or a monarch's views. But um, presumably it's also quite difficult to represent the whole country's views. I mean, does that mean that you, for example, can you get a bit more practical? Does that mean that, you know, if half the country's against taking part in a war in a particular place, you feel the need to represent the opposition as well as the government as the ambassador or uh, um, is it? I think ultimately, I mean, ultimately in a, in a case like that, you'll, you'll take, uh, you'll take the government's view as of course we, we do on as diplomats on the, uh, on the Brexit um, debate. But I think there is a need to be, to be subtle about it as well and not just present the world as, as black and white or a country's views as completely black and white. And there is also, and this is another fundamental kind of uh, rift that runs through the debate, the academic debate about diplomats, this idea that um, diplomacy itself is, is more than just 
national interests, that we're also there to try and promote coexistence, which is a, a way of saying to stop people killing each other. And we've been doing that since the very first naked diplomat, um, you know, the first caveman who uh, convinced another caveman to stop clubbing him over the head for long enough so they could go out and hunt together. Um, when the world is dividing into coexisters and wall builders, and on the other side of the debate, you've got wall builders like uh, Islamic State, who believe that they should attack the grey zone where people interact between cultures. You've got, obviously, someone like Donald Trump. You've got people on the hard left and hard right uh, in Europe. Diplomats should be very much uh, promoting coexisters, the people who, who believe that we're stronger if we cooperate, um, if we collaborate, if we understand um, other cultures. But diplomats sort of exist in a uh, world with very clear rules, with very clear ways of operating, which have been honed over decades, if not centuries. And I remember we had a, I went to quite a moving event um, a few years ago where they had brought together all of the British permanent representatives to the, to the European Union who were still alive. And they were talking about their experiences and, you know, uh, it was it was a, it was an incredible event. And one former uh, British ambassador to the EU said that he thought that being part of Co-Repair, which is the, the weekly, uh, well, it's the, 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 the main decision making body in the European Union, uh, um, was like being part of the best club in the world. <laughs> and he was claiming he claimed with great pride that no matter how bad things got between governments you know with the uh the the thatcher calling for her money back and wielding her handbag and um the um the all the kind of bilateral tensions others were there talking about the beef wars um you know where britain was not cooperating with with other member states um the iraq war that their job was basically to keep the show on the road and that no matter how bad things got between governments back at home they would keep uh talking to each other they uh got on well and they saw their role partly as insulating the european union um and its workings from these kind of big political tensions between uh between uh the politics uh in different places um how does this job get affected by the democratization of international relations because one of the things about uh one, you know there are all sorts of bad things about deals being stitched up behind closed doors and um you know people are very critical about a lot of things that get done but one of the good things about that kind of world is that you can have trade-offs between different interests you can give and take um you can make sure that uh people ultimately all win out in some way um and if there is a desire to keep things going between professional diplomats you can make sure that when there are tensions between countries they they get resolved peacefully but once you you uh throw open the the doors to that sort of world and you involve lots of different people are you not bound into a much more zero-sum contest where people can't admit to making compromises in different areas and, and and where you get much more chaos i mean it's a it's a really um it's a really good point i I would have to, and I'm glad we've sort of started more on the mechanics of diplomacy rather than on some of the just classic 
tech digital stuff because one of the things I'm worried that people will will say about the book and and it's a misunderstanding is that I'm up for just kind of giving everyone iPads and charging around and it's, it's a brave new digital world and we chuck out all the best elements of diplomacy in fact you know a good third of the book is about how we learn from our history as diplomats how do we become how do we retain that curiosity and the creativity and the the courage and the ability to eat anything and get on with anyone that that many of these brilliant former diplomats um, honed over centuries. I'm I'm all for that. Um, But I worry about this idea of a club. Um, I think that might have been sustainable, manageable 20 years ago or so. Um, It was certainly manageable back, you know, say in 1815 when diplomats stitched up the Congress of Vienna and it was a bunch of people there in Vienna for months who had much more in common with each other than with the countries they were representing. And they, they shared the same outlook on the world. They shared the same fear of the alternatives. They, in many cases, shared the same mistresses. I mean, it was a, that, was, that was a club, and it worked at the time. But I think the public at large you know, aren't going to put up with that anymore. Uh, this idea that diplomacy is a bit too complicated for everyone, uh, unless they're a diplomat, that it's some kind of creed or a code, and that... Uh, we can get away with just using platitudes about what we do. You know, Britain has a warm bilateral relationship with Austria that has grown more constructive uh, on a range of bilateral, you know, that sort of stuff. That I think that just switches people off. And unless we're able to communicate with them better, but also represent, to come back to your last question, represent people's views more effectively, then they'll, they'll deal us out of the game. And the democratisation of foreign policy that you, you mentioned on balance, and let's see, you know, I may be proved wrong. On balance, I think it's a good thing. Uh, at each stage that there has been more public oversight of foreign policy, fewer people have got killed. And that's our bottom line. So I'm quite up for empowering the mob and, and making people more aware of what we do, explaining what we do better, and giving me people more of a, a stake in it. But it does make doing foreign policy harder, especially in countries that are more transparent and more open. And the classic example of that. I'd say in my recent experience is Syria, where in August 2013, under the old rules in the club, we would have bombed Assad for using chemical weapons. Under the new rules, we weren't able to do that because uh, uh, our democratic body said, don't do it. Is that, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, Within Britain, that's definitely uh, true that the, well, I'm not sure if the club actually particularly wanted to bomb Assad. I think Downing Street uh, probably did, but I'm not sure how keen. I think the Foreign Office was less keen on um, um, uh, on military action than, than Number 10 was, because Number 10 was looking at things very much through the prism of Libya, whereas I think the Foreign Office, there were bigger debates going on. But you could also argue that the the, the whole red line rhetoric and the, the fact that Obama was almost pushed into doing that was very much to do with the democratisation of foreign policy. And his worries about the kind of narrative of fecklessness because Obama clearly didn't want to, 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 to bomb Syria and was kind of desperately looking for any excuse not to do it. And, and took the sort of life raft of, of, uh, of the Russian um, uh, deal in order to, to avoid doing that in the end. I'm, uh, I'm shocked, Mark, you could ever suggest that the foreign officer number 10 would have different views on the world. I mean, that is a horrifying <laughs> thing to suggest. Um, I think one thing that, that Syria really showed us is that it's harder in a context of greater democratisation of foreign policy to play poker, to call the bluff of your diplomatic opponents, 
So in that example, you know, we were we were saying to the Russians and others, this is the red line. And they were saying, no, it's not. Um, you know, we can we can see the debate in your own country. We can see what social media is saying, your traditional media, uh, and eventually your parliament is saying about where your real red lines are. So you're effectively doing old school diplomatic negotiations, but in a context where where your opponents can see your hand makes it much, much harder. And how does that work? Because it is asymmetrical, because obviously um, the hands of liberal democracies are more visible than the hands of, of more uh, centralised and, uh, you know, deliberately unpredictable regimes. I mean, one of the interesting things about Russian foreign policy over the last few years is that Vladimir Putin clearly sees his his unpredictability is one of the core sources of his power. The fact that most of the foreign policy elite in Russia was blindsided by the annexation of Crimea. The West was certainly blindsided by that deal on, on, uh, on chemical weapons in Syria, also blindsided by Putin's decision to, to intervene um, in Syria uh, and to, to um, step up his, his, uh, his support for the Assad government. How do, how do, uh, democracies deal with that asymmetry well i think i mean, i think this is another challenge to um to the way we do diplomacy and of course it's it's not just state actors like putin who are uh, ready to just turn over the table and say uh, you know we're playing a different game now but also <clears throat> the increasingly powerful non-state actors out there uh whether it's pirates or uh islamic state um and so you know, it's another challenge to to how we how we organise uh, diplomacy is another challenge to kind of the traditional way that we've constructed since 1815 or earlier to deal with these uh, problems. And many of these leaders, and it's a social media point really, um, are, we're discovering that, that people crave this authenticity uh, in their leaders. Um, but the risk of that is that, that many, many leaders have an authentic approach to things which is pretty destructive. So um, one of the big disruptors, maybe the biggest disruptor in your book, is uh, is the the role of technology. Do, do you want to um, talk a bit more about how uh, it actually changes the nature of, of relations between uh, countries, governments, peoples? Because obviously the kit becomes different, but you uh talk in the book about how it's not just the the platforms which change but actually the the behavior of people and the whole dynamics of of international relations which gets changed as a result yeah i mean so i think one one clear consequence is what we've discussed is kind of this um the difficulty that the way it makes it harder to to govern and and to make policy in terms of the relationships um between uh, governments you know all through history, diplomats have tried to stop leaders talking directly to each other too much without the prism of uh, the diplomats uh, in the way to, to interpret and nuance um, their views. That's clearly much, much harder now. Um, I wouldn't go as far as many you know, people used to say you can replace the front office with the facts. You know, every time a new bit of kit comes along that enables more direct conversation, whether it's the facts or the telephone or the Concord, that that's the end of diplomacy. Clearly, it, it hasn't been. But you, you will get much more direct personal engagement by the leaders. But you'll also get, and I think this is, this is where I get most excited about the, 
the Lebanon experience, you get this amazing ability to engage for the first time with with the public at large on a massive scale. So that rather than just needing to talk to the 20 elites in a country, the you know the top 10 ministers plus a couple of uh, media barons and a couple of business leaders, you can you can actually shift policy, shift another country's approach through campaigning, through using social media to, to change the wider view uh, of a people. And that's what we were trying to do in Lebanon. We, you know, at a moment when Lebanon was very shaky, we we used social media to set up a big campaign around Lebanese unity and involving a load of the celebrities and a big Live Aid style, style concert. At a moment when we wanted to change people's views on treatment of domestic workers, we did a viral campaign where I became a domestic worker for the day and cleaned the bathroom and so on. And an Ethiopian um, uh, housemaid called uh, Kelki Dan became, did my job for the day and did it brilliantly and in a very articulate, eloquent way, got on the news and, and, and reshaped people's opinions. When the Iranian embassy in Beirut was blown up, uh, at the time we didn't have diplomatic relations. I couldn't go down and do a formal condolences with the ambassador because my instructions were to adopt a frosty demeanor whenever I saw him. Um, so I went down and donated blood outside the embassy and it went viral. The photo went viral in uh, in Iran, was retweeted by by Rouhani. Um, so there are different, you know, different ways to cut through, to cut past the kind of formal debate between uh, elites. We're not far away from having conferences where leaders inside the room are basically tweeting or using social media to inform the public outside the room in, in order that that public then changes the opinion of their opponents across the negotiating table. And how do you avoid, um, you know, the diplomats looking like, uh, you know, kind of granddad at the disco saying, you know, it's got a really good beat to it. Because the, the point about these worlds is that they are so fundamentally different. The currencies of power, the priorities, the way that people think about things. I mean, the whole uh, idea of being a representative is about aggregating different interests. It's about trying to to look for compromise, for balance, for kind of uh, uh, ways of avoiding conflict with the, the kind of norms and, the, and the, the kind of modes of communication and the, the kind of priorities of the digital sphere are very different. That does tend towards kind of extremes, um, the, the kind of more vile and violent, <laughs> the more viral things go. Um, and uh, so there's both a kind of difference between the sort of idioms, but also uh, most people on, online who use it in these ways are quite a lot younger than, than our political elites. Yeah. So, I mean, it's definitely, we shouldn't look at it as diplomats as some kind of popularity contest where um, our effect is measured in how many likes we get or how many followers uh, we have. You've got to retain the, the quality of it. And it's got to be about promoting your country's security uh, prosperity and values. If, if you lose sight of that and you're just tweeting pictures of yourself kind of stripping on the tube just to get attention, then then you're not doing your job properly and, and people are laughing uh, at you, not um, not with you. Um, but it is, you know, I, I, I always tell ambassadors um, who, who are worried about coming into this space that it's, it's like an enormous 
diplomatic reception where all your contacts are there, exchanging views, kind of interacting, arguing. And you wouldn't just delegate that. You wouldn't just um, stand at the edge and just shout platitudes. You wouldn't go along and just be silent, as some people are on social media. You'd be in the mix. You'd be in the arguments, getting information, trading information. And so while there are many risks to, to being on social media and doing it in, a, in an open, authentic, transparent way, um, the biggest risk is not to be on there, to leave that space to our opponents. But I did used to have, you know, at the embassy, um, plenty of people who, if they thought that I was getting too sucked into being um, uh, a granddad dancing at the wedding, would start humming um, YMCA, and that would uh, that would deter me from going too far towards a stunt that was just for attention. And what maybe kind of end by bringing this back to the European Union? How do you think um, uh, the EU, both its internal diplomacy, but also its um, relations with the rest of the world, could benefit from engaging with this new world that you described well i think you know, one of the challenges um and we've seen it in this campaign on uh, uh, on brexit um is that people feel very disengaged from what's going on uh, in brussels they, they you know they feel there are huge layers between them and decisions being taken on their behalf and that suggests to me that 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 the EU does need to get much, much better at engaging people, reaching out to people, including people, um, especially younger people. Um, you know, when the trend in so many places is to towards a localization of decision making and towards a, ultimately the much more individual control. You look at the on-demand economy, the kind of the Uber economy. Um, you know, these big uh, international institutions that that don't adapt. Uh, Will will quickly find themselves um, rejected, and I'd, I, you know, you could say that for the EU, but you could also say it for the UN. And my current project is trying to uh, help advise the UN on how it can open up and use digital technology to to crack the massive challenges we've subcontracted to to them. Uh, I, I would worry about any of these institutions that that you know, become too detached from from that public debate. And if the public are on social media, if that's where the debate is happening then they've got to be in there too. So final questions, obviously, about Berlusconi's underpants. Can you tell us more? <laughs> I should never have mentioned um, Berlusconi's underpants. I think actually, I think that was that may have been cut from the book in the end, more, more for um, the publisher's sensitivity rather than uh, uh, any breach of national um, security. This was, this was about um, the, the, the first G8 summit that uh, David Cameron went to as prime minister. And these meetings, these interactions between leaders are, are quite theatrical. There's a physicality to it. Um, and so I wanted to find a way to demonstrate to the other leaders that David Cameron was the new guy, the kind of Justin Trudeau of his day, um, uh, you know, fit and strong and, and new and so on. So we went swimming in the lake in Muskoka uh, before the meeting. And then I briefed the other delegations so that everyone would know that he was the, the new guy. Um, so when he arrived there at the meeting, he got huge amounts of attention. They were all uh, very pleased to hear that he'd been out there in this freezing lake. Um, uh, but Berlusconi looked less happy uh, that someone else was getting that um, adulation from the other leaders. And so he went off and fetched eight photos uh, of himself as a, as a, a younger man. I, I would suggest a much younger man um, in a very, very tight pair of um, red uh, speedos um, in a bodybuilder's pose. And circulated it to the uh, the G8 leaders. Um, it's the one 
it's the one time I've ever seen uh, the leaders of the free world completely uh, silent. Wow, that's so... Uh... With that image. <laughs> you left me image. speechless. Yeah, exactly. How do I get through the rest of the day it's, after this? But anyway... A difficult, um... a difficult one to forget. I, I've been trying for, uh, for several years to forget the image, but it, uh, it never quite goes away. Okay, well, thanks a lot, Tom. It's fascinating talking to you about your book. We'll put up links on our website, which is www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. We'll also put up links to some other writings about the about diplomacy and how it's changing and an earlier podcast we did on the topic of digital diplomacy. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do uh, give us a rating on iTunes or SoundCloud, write a review post it on your Facebook page, tweet about it, or use all the other platforms that Tom writes about in his Naked Diplomacy book. But for now, from Tom Fletcher and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The goodbye. researcher of our podcast is Ulrike Franke, and our editor is Katarina Botel-Atzilaro. <laughs>